is episode 47 of the Baked and Awake podcast. Getting ready to do a dab together. ASMR style. Getting ready to dab on some Captain Chronic. Sage and Sour. Looks like BHO. Coming in at around 68%. Total cannabinoids. We got a brand new dab rig today, too. We're going to try out. Excited to try that out together. That tasted good. All right, everybody. I'm going to reload this thing. Wipe out my banger. I suggest you all get ready for a dabby session. We're going to take a quick transition. Hear from a friend. Come right back and dive in on a little bit more information about dabbing, namely care and maintenance of your quartz bangers. That and a whole lot more in just a minute. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Alistree Garage. I'm your host, Maxwell, and I want to educate you, entertain you, and talk shop with you. Go ahead and grab your drink of choice and join us while we discuss everything from two-door sports cars to four-wheel drive off-roading machines. Come see us every Monday at the Alistree Garage. If you are interested, check out our website, alistreegarage.com, or check us out on your choice of Google Play Music and iTunes. we're back thank you to our friends over at Owl Street Garage fellow members of the Podcast Builders League and a really cool and informative podcast as you can tell about automotive and the great tradition of car talk and probably but a few others in hallowed company over the years uh Fun stuff, informative stuff, entertainingly delivered. Go on over and check them out. All right. Uh, well, we did a dab at the outset of our episode today. What is it? Middle of July here, 12th of July. It's a Thursday afternoon. It's pretty hot up here in the recording booth. Got a couple of fans going in the background, and hopefully they won't be too distracting. I think I think they're going to be just fine. Let me know. Let me know how the episode sounds. Um. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna casually call the Captain Chronic Sage and Sour our strain of the week, and uh, we won't do a whole lot of uh, digging or investigation in on that today. That's not the focus of today's episode, but I will include all the pertinent information. Pick that up over at Star International, over in beautiful Burien, Washington today, on my way back from a Dairy Queen run and a park session with the family. So, uh, and it is a beautiful bright orange kind of sugar uh, crystal type concentrate, and uh, great color, great texture, terpy. Uh, notably, a uh, citrus top note on it. That must be the sour um, that's presenting. Uh, really great stuff, though. Uh, they're showing here their 100% indoor hydroponic grown flower on their packaging. I like it. I like it. Good work, Captain Chronic. Uh, okay, so let's find our notes, Steve. Because we're not just here to chit chat. Got some. Great material for you today. I will say that this first story is inspired by uh, my interest in learning how to properly care for, extend the life of, and get the most out of my new dab rig, which uh, those of you who follow me on Instagram will have already seen this, and it's nothing fancy. It's a, you know, $50, you know, import rig from the local, you know, tobacco and vape shop. Uh, I picked it up on 710. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not a guy who's got, you know, really beautiful headies, you know. Um, that's something that I'd like to grow into in time, but I'm a clumsy oaf, first off. I have two young kids in the house, second off. Bunch of uh, lumbering 
derpy animals who don't respect or care about anything that, uh, you know, you put down around them anywhere. And uh, even my lair isn't even that secure these days. So those are my excuses. Those are my excuses why I wouldn't have a collector piece um, of some kind from, you know, some talented local glassmaker. In a few instances, I've been lucky enough to be blessed with uh, pieces. None of them have lasted that long just yet. Sad to say. With very few exceptions, I have one pipe that I think a friend blew for me that I've managed to hang on to for a few years now and haven't broken it, but it's a simple spoon. <laughs> so anyway, new rig. It's some kind of recycler, so it chugs really nicely. It has lots of holes in it. It has a lot of volume. It's like a half liter in, in water volume. Um, and I'm coming off of a, like, gross old titanium nail and killer glass, like, banger class, like, mid-sized, smaller-sized uh, dab rig. So this, like, table-sized unit uh, just feels really luxurious uh, to me, heavy and large. Um, the smoothness of the dabs coming on the, on the quartz nail and uh, with the larger water volume right off the top is just really pleasant. Um, and so... Something that we all learn about uh, pretty quickly when you you know you start getting uh, you know finding your love for dabs <clears throat> is that glass bangers will they call it chazzing okay if you overheat your banger you're gonna run the possibility of yeah like blackening the bottom. Uh, often in a ring that goes all the way around the whole bowl and, you know, quickly degrades the look and, yes, probably the taste of your subsequent dabs. Um, you know, it's really hard to get excited about putting, you know, fresh, you know, lovely solventless rosin that you and your friends just uh, pressed out of your hard-grown, uh, you know, homegrown and and put it in a chazzy old uh, nasty banger. You know, a few years ago, people were dabbing on titanium nails all the time you know these days we see those usually these days if you see a titanium nail it's probably on an e-nail and it's absolutely fine there's nothing wrong with that there's plenty of ways to keep that nail relatively clean and you know have decent dabs off of it e-nails are super convenient so i'm not tripping on that tech at all um but uh you know here i am sitting here with a coleman propane canister in my hand so i ain't judging nobody um, but you know, that's the, that's the torch that I've found hasn't clogged for me one time. Um, all these dime store, corner store, and glass shop hand torches, uh, I've bought two and three of them at, you know, double and triple the price of this little, you know, $15 nozzle attachment that I think I, I don't even know if I paid 15 for it. This is the, the really the cheapest one, the one with the clicker, igniter, and the dial on it. And it's, and it screws onto the green Coleman cans. Um, but this torch works great, you know. Um, uh, torches are getting really wonderful these days. There's a couple of tabletop torches. There's a torch out from a company called Tochi, I think. Tochi Torch, um, which, you know, you can set up and adjust the angle and just move your pipe, your whole bong and the banger right to in front of the Tochi and let it heat it right up for you. Um, I want to say some of them might even have, like, infrared temperature sensors so it would, like, shut off when it heats your thing up all the way. I don't know for sure on that one. Um, if they don't, they should. It wouldn't be probably too big of a feat of engineering to make that happen. But uh, anyway, 
we're going to learn, I, I watched a YouTube video um, on how to, you know, how to keep these glass bangers. That's your bowl. Okay, guys. And, and again, I've shown photos of the whole rig on, on Instagram. I'll take a picture of the bowl, the banger itself on Instagram for you guys. And you can see how clean or dirty mine is. So it's not, you know, a secret um, how good or badly I really am doing it. It's a struggle and I'm learning all the time how to, uh, you know, first off time this banger for optimal heating and cool down um, so that I get a vaporized low temp dab that doesn't make me cough and hack. I think that opening dab sounded just as smooth as it tasted um, and that one worked out great and I didn't end up having much to clean up with the Q-tip swab, Q-tip swab uh, in the banger after the dab. And so altogether that, you know, that's what we're going to come to find out is the proper technique is don't dab too hot, then um, swab it out after every dab. Um, alcohol on the swab is optional. Uh, I've found I get pretty good results when I do use that on more stubborn um, stains and deposits, but uh, some of these guys just hit it with a little more heat and then wipe it again. Um, and uh, so, yeah, uh, you're going to evolve your technique. You're going to learn your technique. There's some good do's and don'ts. Uh, what I've got is a uh, a link to a, a little short video that's very well done that I definitely recommend you watch so you can visually see the man uh, perform the uh, the different maintenances on his different styles of bangers. Um, but we're going to read some of the highlights from the article as well. Uh, and this is, uh, I think, the same dude both wrote this blog piece and um, has the YouTube uh, video on this. Uh, and that is Matt Lee, and I believe he's a Pacific Northwesterner. So, Matt, thank you, brother. Maybe we'll see you sometime out there. I think he might be a Portland dude. Um, but uh, this just was posted, you know, this year, this month. Um, no, last year. Yeah, this this time last year. Okay, so this is, but, you know, the cool thing about this is all his, and that's still pretty darn current um all his bangers and stuff look really modern like there's a lot of newer styles and stuff that we're seeing these days uh and he goes into two or three different styles like thin bottom thick bottom um and then a uh, weird little uh like knuckle shaped one um that was pretty awesome too so but uh let's do this again let's take another dab together Right? And then we'll talk about it and kind of do it at the same time. Oh, yeah, of course, now I've... For the first time in its life, my torch doesn't want to light on its own. Wow, stage fright from the torch. Getting no spark from it. <laughs> there it is. funny never have to hit that button more than once now it's like nope I'm dying tonight dying tonight Steve mid show for you it's not we're not gonna make it through the show gonna be dabless torchless I'll be putting a bick up under this damn banger trying to get it hot ain't gonna work Back 
background music this episode, as always, provided by our friend Ante Luode of beautiful Finland and SoundCloud fame. Ante provides royalty-free music to creatives like myself, like yours truly, and many others uh, for their podcasting and YouTube endeavors, other non-commercial type applications. Now I can already tell I sort of, I think I overheated the banger versus last time. It's smoking on me. It's smoking on me as I'm waiting for it to cool down here. Which, you know, might mean I also didn't clean it out, swab it out as well as I should have. It didn't look that bad. It didn't go full chaz on me either, though. It's just kind of got a little sepia tone to the sides, not really a bottom ring on it. They say it right here at the top of the article. Matt says, What's the first rule of keeping the quartz chaz-free? Don't take hot dabs. If you're concerned about the puddle getting left behind, don't be. And I, I tend to agree. Um, which he's talking about, unless you're rationing out reclaim, pour it out or suck it through into a claim catcher, save it for a rainy day, I guess people use their reclaim for things like edibles. Uh, it's really interesting. I mean, they say it's mostly, if not fully, decarboxylated oil, your reclaim, and that THCA turns into THC. Let's take this dab before it gets too cool. and I might have blabbed too long and let that get a little bit too cool. Although it tasted really good. So see, it's very interesting. I'll say this, and others have, have told me this before plenty of times. So this concentrate that we have today is, is, is a terpy one. Um, it's got great flavor. And really, frankly, you have to flirt with that um, threshold of too low of a temp of a dab because when you can, when you can keep it really low, you, you're just you're just kissing that concentrate with the heat and you're just letting it open up instead of combust violently um, instead of you know instantly uh, being shocked into its transmutation from solid to gas um, or from liquid to gas depending on the consistency of what you're melting on the nail Luckily, that was a little one, so we can do one more. Oh, let's, let's give it a wipe first before we hit it with more heat, though.
Okay, so I wiped a mostly cool banger. Not all the way cool. You don't want it to tack back up if you do have oil left over in there that you're trying to wipe out. Um, no oil, no water or anything. I did get a noticeable brown uptake all around on my swab, picking that stuff up. And I have a pretty nice clean uh, bottom of the banger uh, ready to try to reheat, um, you know, for this rapid fire, you know, two in succession dabs, right? Sometimes you're having a dab session, right? You're not gonna like just clean it and put it away like a fucking princess every time you dab it one time. That's what I'm talking about. One click, that's what I'm looking for. Come on, Coleman. More like it. So yeah, I was gonna say, you might wipe it out every time in between dabs, but you're probably gonna reheat it again pretty quickly because you know you maybe have a buddy over you, you're dabbing together. You're being social. So heat your rig up, don't heat it up too much. In between rounds, let it cool down almost all the way, but not quite all the way before you make sure you don't forget to do a quick cursory in-between swap. Your next heat cycle might not need to be quite as long. Because even that next few, you know, 40, 50 degrees that you didn't let it go down all the way back down to total ambient room temperature uh, was probably plenty. I've been, I'm really doing bad because we're talking right now, so I'm not timing, I'm like mentally timing. But uh, I've been flirting with between 45 and 60 seconds on this nail uh, when I'm timing the dabs. Uh, I am finding that pushing it over about 60 seconds is, as I said, a little bit iffy. You're, you're maybe cooling down on this uh, banger a little bit more than you ultimately want it to, unless you're having just a tiny little wee micro dab, in which case it probably has enough heat, even at 60 seconds or more, to still deliver a good vaporization hit. All right, without going too far, let's try this one more time. Okay, that is that is working well. That is working well. And that is some yummy, yummy oil. Sage and sour. I do, I feel, it's like, I don't know if rosemary is related to sage, but it, it's sagey. It really is. I like it. Are we having music trouble? Our song's starting and not finishing here? What do we got going on here? Keep a little closer eye on our on our tunes, y'all. I don't know what happened there. I don't know if we lost a song. We'll have to go back and listen over playback. All right. So Matt Lee last year he he helped us out with you know this this first and most important tip: don't take hot dabs. It's one I've said many times and couldn't agree with 
the author more here. He's apparently, you know, and I'm sure this is not news to a lot of you, you know, pointing out that a lot of people do harvest that reclaim. I've never re-harvested a drop of that stuff in my life. I just try to clean it up. Anyway, a couple different tips that you can also do to keep that banger cleaner. You could try taking smaller dabs. You can get a larger banger with more surface area if you want to take those larger dabs. Larger banger, right? Thicker bottom on that larger banger will retain heat longer. That'll allow you to take bigger dabs and it'll vaporize that oil for longer before it loses its heat in the heat transfer and, you know, begins to go back down to just leftover oil that you have to clean up. Um, they point out that you can even try experimenting with different styles of carb cap. I have a carb cap that is round with a pass-through, like, straw, uh, upper stem and a lower stem. I'll include that in a picture next to the banger for Instagram for you guys to see that. Um, and it has the all too common uh, and popular these days like finger twiddler uh, sort of action that that encourages when you insert the bottom tip and the bottom half of the globe of this carb cap in. You can either leave it in place, not touch it, and pull through and pull through the straw, you know, fresh air um, on your way to inhaling what's also vaporizing in the banger, or you can put your finger on it and spin it around and twiddle the tip, letting air leak in here and there around the sides a, a bit at a time as it goes. So, uh, it's a fun carb cap and works well with the shape of the banger that I've got. And it just sort of encourages that sort of playful technique when you're working your way through your dab. So yeah, he cleans three different bangers in the video. It's a few minutes long. We're not going to watch it here or talk about it too much more. Um, he cleans a thick bottom jacketed quartz banger, a thin bottom thermal banger, which is of the type that I'm using right now. That's what I would call that. And then um, he has an interesting, like I said, like a, 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 like a knuckle-shaped or a knot-shaped, he calls it a J-Red knot. Uh, it's probably a name brand of a particular uh, maker's uh, knot. Um, so, you know, he talks about heating up the nail once and uh, letting the ring of sort of soot appear. You actually intentionally slightly blacken after you've swabbed, all right? You, you, you dabbed. You let it cool down a little bit further after the dab. Before it cools off completely, you swabbed it. Now you're going to hit it with it in-between blast of propane. Or maybe you are just putting it away. You're taking one nice dab and you're putting it away. So now this is your cleanup, right? Either way. You're going to hit it with heat one more time, though, and bring back up a ring because you're going to have left some residue behind. And that's what you're going to then want to swab again, right? Hit it with the heat. Make that ring appear. Don't stick the Q-tip right in on that burning hot glass now again. Let it cool down quite a bit. You can let it cool down a little bit more even if you want at this point because it's more like ash and carbon at this point. Uh, he uses the wooden uh, stick, single-sided Q-tips, and I will say this about that. The Q-tips that I've got, which are the cotton swab with the cardboard um, body or, or stem, that does sort of collapse and, you know, 
it gets soft really easily when you're like trying to work it around in the uh, bottom of the banger. So a wooden tip would potentially work better uh, in that respect. Something to consider if you're like out of Q-tips anyway and you were thinking about buying more, maybe look at getting a bunch of wood tip ones, um, like medical doctor, you know, examination style uh, kind of thing. A tongue depressor style, but not that big, of course. Or tongue, or like mouth swab, right, kind of style. Anyway. They have like legit dab ones too. I think they're like glob mops or something like that. Glob swabs, I'm not sure what they call them. There's, I'm sure, more than one of them, so. All right. If you got a quartz banger and you have some tips for us, I'd love to hear them. I'm saying I'm still having mixed results at times. Uh, you know, I'm still overheating at moments. I'm still leaving too much behind because I dosed out a little bit too much of a dab for the temp that I ultimately let it, t- you know, time back down to uh, before I started dabbing. Uh, that's the thing. It's part art, part science, right? And it's a whole lot of making friends with your equipment. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say I'm enjoying this new dab rig. Uh, the equipment is good. The operator needs work. Uh, if you don't have any tips for me, but you're interested in actually looking at that video and reading the rest of the, this article, um, then I'm going to point you at sweetpieceofglass.com how to keep your quartz clean. And uh, it'll, of course, be in your detailed show notes for the show, as always. Um, Yeah, and I think that was Matt Lee who we have to thank for that one. Indeed we do. Thank you, Matt. So before we jump in next, we're going to change gears now, everybody. So we're coming out of the cannabis talk for today, for the moment. I mean, you know, we're always talking cannabis. But... um, We'll be back at that next week. We're going to turn our eyes and ears to abroad, to Asia, to a story about widespread surveillance on the part of applications on behalf of themselves and, in this case, by the looks of it, the government of China on pretty much all their customers in the market over there. And as you come to find out, by extension, anybody who communicates with any of those customers. So, get ready for that. Uh, I don't know why, but I'm feeling brave. Probably going to dab yet again. Before we finish this visit together today. We even have one more story for you too, so... 
So just in case, you know, I get a lot of stuff from a lot of weird places. I'm sure I did find this probably originally through a slash dot fueled tunnel or something uh, similar. But, uh, let's see here. All right. Wow. Had to dig into my notes. I had the wrong link there, so I hit pause on you, everybody. And we're cooling down from after using the torch. I'm about to take one more dab. And, uh... We're going to jump in on app traps on uh, low-cost Chinese smartphones and uh, having to do with data siphoning on the same. This is a Wall Street Journal article we're going to get. You probably can't even hear me. I'm over here talking to the sky, not even looking at the mic. Let's dab. what those super low temp ones do taste fucking delicious um and i mean all right i'll take a picture all right i'm gonna take a picture let me forgive me adjusting all right so um i'm gonna take a photo of what's left in the bowl after like a super low temp dab that you know sort of if you can even see it there's a little there's a little oil around the edge and it's pretty color it's what it's what Mr. Uh, uh, Matt mentioned in his story as reclaim, you know, potentially usable material, I suppose. Now I'm just going to swab it out. Swabbing it out before the banger gets too cool. Bottom's pretty clean. My sides have, you know, heated up and sepiaed up a little bit in the course of this session so I'm hoping that after you know I finish this evening and then I put this to bed for the night in a soak um, that last material will swab out you know much more easily by morning but yeah low temp is best temp try to get a shot of the sage and sour for you as well for the 
purposes of the documentation of our experience, right? Together. All right, let's jump into that article. Enough dabs. What? Never enough dabs. I already have it up for us now. This is pretty new. July 5th of this year, Wall Street Journal, okay? Newly Purnell reports on this story for us. For millions of people buying inexpensive smartphones in developing countries, where privacy protections are usually low, the convenience of on-the-go internet access could come with a hidden cost. Preloaded apps that harvest users' data without their knowledge. Jumping out for a second, obviously this is a running theme here on the show. And we're tracking this, you know, under the usual mass surveillance kind of scene. This is terms and conditions, terms of service. This is stuff that is also happening here in North America, although on a little bit little bit less grandiose scale than what we're going to see referenced here in this story, I'd like to think, I'd like to believe. Uh, but here we go. You're going to recognize some names of a few of these apps, especially if you have younger members of your family or you're younger yourself and you have friends, uh, especially international friends at all. A lot of these apps are very popular. Um, one such app included on thousands of Chinese-made SingTech P10 smartphones sold in Myanmar and Cambodia sends the owner's location and unique device details to a mobile advertising firm in Taiwan called General Mobile Corp, or Gmobi. The app also has appeared on smartphones sold in Brazil and those made by manufacturers based in China and India, security researchers said. All big countries, all countries with a lot of communication going in and out to, for example, North America. Taipei-based Gmobi, with a subsidiary in Shanghai, says it uses the data to show targeted ads on the devices. It also sometimes shares the data with device makers to help them learn more about their customers. Smartphones have been billed as transformative technology in developing markets bringing low-cost internet access to hundreds of millions of people. But this growing population of novice consumers, most of them living in countries with lax or non-existent privacy protections, is also a juicy target for data harvesters, according to security researchers. Smartphone makers that allow Gmobi to install its app on phones they sell are able to use the app to send software updates for their devices, known as firmware at no cost to them, said Gmobi Chief Executive Paul Wu. That benefit is an important consideration for device makers pushing low-cost phones across emerging markets. If end-users users want a free internet service, he or she needs to suffer a little for better targeting ads, said a Gmobi spokeswoman. I like that she felt comfortable as a spokesperson for this very company, one of the data aggregators and, and merchants, 
uh, to say, uh, characterize it as suffering. Okay. Um, T.T. Mo, a sales clerk in Mandalay, Myanmar, said she was unaware until being informed by the Wall Street Journal that G-Mobi was collecting data from her SingTech P10. She said she had become annoyed in recent months at frequent advertisements on its screen for mobile games. I don't want that kind of app on my phone, said the 28-year-old, who added that she bought her phone last year for $77 pretty low costs, uh, uh, probably 77 equivalent, you know, for us, if they're writing this for us. I'm not familiar with the technology, but it seems like it shouldn't be taking my private information. Such apps are exploiting and developing economies and individuals, are, are exploiting developing economies, and individuals who can't afford better devices and clearly tracking them, said Mark Groman, who until last year served as White House Office of Management and Budget Senior Privacy Advisor, and now works as an independent consultant in Washington, D.C. In the EU and the U.S., this would not be lawful, he said, based on how GMOBI described its actions and researchers' findings. Shanghai-based ADUPS and Indian digital advertising firm Mo Magic also offer firmware updating services in partnership with smartphone makers. Mo Magic chief executive Arun Gupta declined to say which services the company provides to specific makers, but said his company focuses on India and Bangladesh. We all know the law so far in India and Bangladesh is weak, he said, of private data collection regulations. Whatever we collect is following the law of the land. So that's the chief executive officer of Mo Magic, Arun Gupta, with those comments. Nice. You know, no need to go above and beyond for your people at all there. And I mean, this stuff applies to other Chinese manufacturers. We had one whose name escapes me right now who just got suspended from being able to... Um, Highway was it? somebody who was getting really popular with some low-cost handsets, um, and they got kicked out of the market. Um, but I think OnePlus has been uh, caught out with some vulnerabilities of this sort as well, and they're another popular, affordable, mass-market, Western-market uh, manufacturer. They might mention them here. Um, anyway, uh, not too much more on this, but a little bit. Uh, Upstream Systems, a London-based mobile commerce and security firm that identified the GMOBI's app's activity and shared it with the journal, said that it bought four new, four new devices. Okay, and this is yeah, this, this is what we want to kind of get into. This is the heart of the detail of sort of how it how it occurs. Um, this included 15-digit international mobile equip mobile equipment identification. So. Uh, yeah, so they bought four new devices. Once activated, they began sending data to Gmobi via its firmware updating apps. They must have put some sort of sniffer on that traffic and watched what happened when, you know, the uh, the phones got turned on and the app got turned on. Um, this included 
IMEIs, that's International Mobile Equipment Identification, along with unique codes called MAC addresses. You guys have all heard these uh, terms before. They're assigned to each piece of hardware that connects to the web. The app also sends some location data to Gmobi's servers at the same time, it sounds like, located in Singapore. Um, this is Upstream from the UK reporting on that. Upstream also said that in recent months it blocked Gmobi's app from making suspicious attempts to sign up users for paid services such as mobile games. Nice. Wow. That's some aggressive shit. Okay. Had the app been successful, users would have been billed more than $7 million in total across eight countries, Upstream says. Gmobi's Mr. Wu said the company wasn't responsible for any malicious activity emanating from its app. Wow. That's like... Heavy shit, you guys. He's not even responsible. As far as he's concerned. As far as they're concerned. Okay? Like, not only is it occurring to hundreds of millions of customers, but they're not responsible. They don't even have a position on what they want to do about it. <clears throat> Many popular smartphone apps collect user data, such as contacts and even locations. But users typically install such apps, actively consent to the data collection, and can delete the apps at any time. Doesn't matter the data's been collected doesn't matter that we're overwhelmed with these, uh, you know, terms of service and uh, consent forms that we have to acquiesce to for everything and the gross overreaches that almost every single one of them are, you know, guilty of, you know, these are different. Those are much better. But anyway, rant. Gmobi software comes pre-installed on new smartphones that does blow, and it can only be removed by taking elaborate technical steps. Oh, super weak. Yeah, so that's like, yeah, that's like really heavy. <laughs> that's crazy. Okay, so Gmobi provides firmware update and other services to more than 100 smartphone makers, churning out 2,000 different models of phones with more than 150 million users globally. So, some of these motherfuckers talk to some of you motherfuckers. They WeChat with you. They Telegram with you. They Snap with you. You order from Alibaba, you're talking to some of them. You order from fucking Amazon, you're talking to some of them. I don't even know how many other platforms and ways you're exposed. We're all exposed. On some level. Some of the time. But I mean, I contend we are all the time anyway. It doesn't need to be technically difficult to uninstall. We have dozens of these apps on our phones willingly all the time. Uh, so, paragraph upon paragraph of companies pointing fingers at other companies and saying that they don't work with each other anymore and they didn't know about each other's things and they updated each other's terms of service to get permission and or to, you know, wind down or curtail certain uh, unnecessary features because these things are asking for permissions that they don't need and that aren't even part of the core value proposition of what they're doing on your phone in, in the first place. 
Uh, so... It's a great story. Newly Purnell at the Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, pretty much winds it down by pointing out that, you know, all sorts of people, as I said, blame each other, don't have a strong uh, plan for rectifying this moving forward. Um, an Intex spokesman at MoMagic provides the company with firmware updating service but doesn't collect user details for advertising purposes. Sony and Panasonic, who they also reference up there a little bit further up in the article, didn't immediately respond to requests for comment on any partnership with MoMagic, apparently not in time for the article nor in time for any update to the article. The article came out on the 12th, no, the 5th, so, um, you know, it's just a few days old. Um, we'll include the link to the story in the show notes. It'll be there for you to check out yourself. They do have some links embedded in this story that point back to some of the key points that they reference, the countries that these types of phones are deployed in, um, the list of the manufacturers, etc., and you can contact the author there as well. I love it. Everybody's in trouble, you guys. Everybody's in trouble with this stuff. I I just... We're not going to get into it today. We're going to keep it moving. We're going to keep it pushing on topic. We're not going to worry about it. We were sort of... We're lightly reporting on it. We're aware of it. It's a running theme. Their problem looks like our problem. Our problem looks like their problem. It doesn't sound that different than what we're dealing with over here. I guess the point for those customers is they're in the Chinese market, so, you know, that data is also being heavily, heavily, heavily directly uh, shared with their government. Their data and their internet is heavily censored. Uh, their data is censored. Their product that they create is censored. Their ability to export their, you know, data and their products, their content, etc., is probably heavily uh, restricted. Uh, and, and likewise, their ability to consume foreign content. So... Um, that's that's rough and probably markedly different than our plight in the Western sphere, right? So we can be grateful for that. So that's what I'll hang on to for today. Uh, all right. So rolling into getting close to the top of an hour here, uh, you know up on like 55 minutes. So we're going to uh, dive back in for a few minutes here with the Thunderbolts project and the Electric Universe Theory, which we introduced a couple episodes back when we talked about the Ganymede Hypothesis. And uh, that 
was a really fun episode that posited that Ganymede, uh, among all the other bodies in the near solar system and, well, our solar system and the nearer reaches of our sort of part of the neighborhood in the galaxy here, uh, was most likely to have been a potential home for, like, early man. Uh, That Venus joined the local solar system along with uh, potentially some other bodies uh, that have since uh, gone away, uh, been destroyed, been absorbed by one of our gas giants. Um, And in the arrival of Venus into the solar system, uh, interactions between the planets some would say gravitational, these folks posit and suggest that it is electromagnetic in nature, the interactions between the celestial bodies, uh, and that these were tumultuous interactions that took place, that a planet like Mars was involved and perhaps heavily transformed. The planet Earth was involved and heavily uh, transformed over time uh, and perhaps uh, beings who formerly could have lived on a what is now a very cold satellite of Saturn, Ganymede um, or Jupiter Jupiter would have had to or been able to during a certain window of time have migrated from their dangerous world that was passing into an uninhabitable region uh, to our world, which was becoming increasingly habitable uh, and friendly, especially as compared to virtually everywhere else in the local area. So... Uh, we're going to not let me sit here and stammer through my own recollection too much more. I'll point you back at the Ganymede Hypothesis episode. I want to say it was episode, like, 45, uh, where we went in deep on a, on a long-form uh, document there. And uh, we're back visiting the Thunderbolts Project, the overarching, uh, you know, academic body who's, you know, explaining and exploring this theory of even creation of the universe. This is how far back this theory sort of seeks to look to answer questions. Um, And we're going to read the introduction as part of their essential guide to the EU. I'm going to read most most of the introduction. I've gone through it. It's a nice two-pager. This is a little older. This stock has been kicking around. This is up here since 2011. 
It's all going to be in the show notes for you. You guys can check this out as well. They have dozens and dozens of uh, links and resources on this page. Links to a lot of their documentaries. Let me get a sip of my uh, LaCroix here. So, it looks like Bob Johnson and Jim Johnson contributed to this story, this article, together. This is the introduction, uh, the essential guide to the electric universe. Now more than ever, the exploration of our starry universe excites the imagination. Never before has space presented so many pathways for research and discovery. New observational tools enable us to see formerly invisible portions of the electromagnetic spectrum. And the view is spectacular. Telescope images in X-ray, radio, infrared, and ultraviolet light reveal exotic structure and intensely energetic events that continually redefine the quest as a whole. So, yes, these guys are, you know, they're having their fun. They're going to they're get grandiose, but I know I can, t- I can feel myself relaxing already after talking about mass surveillance again. Can't you? This is beautiful. Let's keep going. Spectrographic interpretation has grown hand-in-hand with faster, large memory computers and programs. In sophistication and in broad scientific data processing, imaging, and modeling capability. Standing out amidst an avalanche of new images is the greatest surprise of the space age. Evidence for pervasive electric currents and magnetic fields across the universe. All connecting and animating what once appeared as isolated islands in space. The intricate details revealed are not random, but exhibit the unique behavior of charged particles in plasma under the influence of electric currents. The telltale result is a complex of magnetic fields and associated electromagnetic radiation. We see the effects on and above the surface of the sun, in the solar wind, in plasma structures, around planets and moons, in the exquisite structure of nebulas, in the high-energy jets of galaxies, and across the unfathomable distances between galaxies. Thanks to the technology of the 20th century, astronomers of the 21st century will confront an extraordinary possibility. The evidence suggests that intergalactic currents originating 
far beyond the galaxies themselves, directly affect galactic evolution. The observed fine filaments and electromagnetic radiation in intergalactic and interstellar plasma are the signature of electric currents. Even the power lighting the galaxy's constituent stars may indeed be found in electric currents winding through galactic space. So implying an alternate model to solar energy, you know, creation and generation. If I read that right, and I, I believe I do, because we've, we've seen them talk about it elsewhere. They have tables, they have graphs, they have images, they have a lot of, a lot of stuff to support, just helping you conceptualize what they're... what they're proposing. It was long thought that only gravity could do work, quote-unquote, or act effectively across cosmic distances. But perspectives in astronomy are rapidly changing. Specialists trained in the physics of electricity and magnetism have developed new insights into the forces active in the cosmos. A plausible conclusion emerges. Not gravity alone, but electricity and gravity have shaped and continue to shape the universe we now observe. As I sit here and podcast at you electronically and I'm surrounded by my gadgetry in all its diversity and I myself am a product of the electrical, technological world that I live in. Um, and last I checked, they say even we biologically are, you know, at base, sort of greatly resemble batteries. Uh, we, we carry an electric current. We, you know, have a charge. Uh, very interesting stuff. Anyway, I guess I'm saying, I, you know, I've already said this before. I, I love this stuff. I'm feeling it. It's super interesting shit. I don't know if it's true or not. Um, but let's go on. A little history. The early theoretical foundation for modern astronomy was laid by the work of Johannes Kepler and Isaac Newton in the 17th and 18th centuries. Since 1687, when Newton first explained the movement of the planets with his law of gravity, science has relied on gravity to explain all large-scale events, such as the formation of stars and galaxies, or the births of planetary systems. The foundation rested on the observed role of gravity in our solar system. Research into the nature and potential of electricity had not yet begun. They show Benjamin Franklin flying a kite for us. <laughs> uh, 
then in the 19th century, research pioneers, whose very names crackle with electricity. Alessandro Volta, Andre Ampere, Michael Faraday, Joseph Henry, James Clerk Maxwell, and John H. Pointing began to empirically verify the laws governing magnetism and electrodynamic behavior and developed useful equations describing them. By the start of the 20th century, a Norwegian researcher, Christian Berklund, was exploring the relationship between the aurora borealis and the magnetic fields he was able to measure on the Earth below them. He deducted that flows of electrons from the sun were the source of the northern lights, a conclusion confirmed in detail by modern research. It would be at least another 70 years before the phrase Birkeland currents began to enter the astronomer's lexicon. Subsequent work by other scientists, James John, Nobel laureate, Irving Langmuir, Willard Bennett, and Nobel laureate Hannes Alfven, author of Cosmic Plasma, continued to extend our understanding of ionized matter, that is to say, plasma, the fourth state of matter, in parentheses. In the latter half of the 20th century, Alfven's close colleague, Anthony Parat, published a groundbreaking textbook on space plasma, Physics of the Plasma Universe. The culmination of his hands-on, high-energy plasma experiments and supercomputer particle-in-cell plasma simulations at the Department of Energy's Los Alamos Laboratory in New Mexico, USA. That book has continued to serve as a guide to specialists in the field. A new tone in astronomy occurred as engineers pointed radio telescopes to the sky and began to detect something astronomers had not expected. Radio waves from energetic events in the emptiness of space. At the second IEEE, International Workshop on Plasma Astrophysics and Cosmology, 1993, Kevin Healy of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory presented a paper, A Window on the Plasma Universe, The Very Large Array, in which he concluded, with the continuing emergence, and when he mentions the Very Large Array, they're talking about the VLA uh, Radio Telescope Observatory, which has many, many, uh, I believe, a couple, few hundred uh, radio telescopes all positioned all throughout one big property um, in different spots. So, huge. In which he concluded, with the continuing emergence of serious difficulties in the, quote, standard models of astrophysics and the rise of the importance of plasma physics in the description of many astrophysical systems, the VLA, Very Large Array, is a perfect instrument to provide the observational support for laboratory, simulation, and theoretical work in plasma physics, 
Its unprecedented flexibility and sensitivity provide a wealth of information on any radio emitting region of the universe. So they show a typical image of like what you sort of uh, see when viewing things on that VLA. And it's interesting. It's like, you know, more crude and monochrome, but it's it's like you see a celestial body and, and, and things veining into and veining out of it, like water currents in space, if I can characterize them as such. But they're like, this is a green scale monochrome to black. Uh, graphic image. I'm sure it can be filtered in any number of different colors, probably coded to what they're seeing in the ultraviolet or electromagnetic spectrum, right? So. At the start of the 21st century, Wallace Thornhill and David Talbot wrote their collaborative work, The Electric Universe, an electrical engineer and professor Donald E. Scott authored The Electric Sky. Together, these works provide the first general introduction to a new understanding of electric currents and magnetic fields in space. A lot of the material in the electric universe and this material that we're covering in, you know, written form here like I've said before, is uh, a lot of it is available as documentaries, both on YouTube or as accessible through the Thunderbolts Project website here, thunderbolts.info, where we'll point you at directly. And I haven't run into a paywall really anywhere with these guys. I think they hope for donations, for support. Um, and maybe now that I've podcasted about it like twice, I'll, I'll find $5 and kick it their way. Uh, <laughs> Um, let's see if we can't help him out. <laughs> um, a little bit for their trouble. Leading the way in technical publication has been Nuclear and Plasma Sciences, Sciences Society, a division of the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, IEEE. This professional organization is one of the world's largest publishers of scientific and technical literature. Standing on the shoulders of the electrical pioneers, Carl Falthammer, Garrett Verschur, Herr Karlquist, Goran Marklund, and many others, continue to extend groundbreaking plasma research to this day. The Limits of Gravitational Theory The Law of Gravity, which relies exclusively on the masses of celestial bodies and the distances between them, works very well for explaining planetary and satellite motions within our solar system. But when astronomers tried to apply it to galaxies and clusters of galaxies, it turns out that nearly 90% of the mass necessary to account for the observed motion is missing. The trouble began in 1933 when astronomer Fritz Zwicky, this sounds like a dark matter problem, uh, calculated the mass to light ratio for eight galaxies in the coma cluster of the Coma Berenices, Berenices hair, 
constellation. It, it looks like Berenice's, like Bernice, Berenice's hair. At the time, it was assumed that the amount of visible light coming from stars should be proportional to their masses. In parentheses, a concept called visual equilibrium. As Zwicky was to realize, the apparent rapid velocities of the galaxies around their common center of mass, or the Barry Center, suggested that much more mass than could be seen was required to keep the galaxies from flying out of the cluster. Zwicky concluded that the missing mass must therefore be invisible, or dark. Other astronomers, such as Sinclair Smith, who performed calculations on the Virgo cluster in 1936, began to find similar problems. To make matters worse, in the 1970s, radial velocity plots, radius from the center versus star's speed of rotation, for stars in the Milky Way galaxy revealed that the speeds flatten out rather than trail down, implying that velocity continues to increase with radius contrary to what Newton's law of gravity predicts for, and which is observed in the solar system. Okay. In short, astronomers using the gravity model were forced to add a lot more mass to every galaxy than can be detected at any wavelength. They called this extra matter dark. Its existence can only be inferred from the failure of predictions. To cover for the insufficiency, they gave themselves a blank check, a license to place this imagined stuff wherever needed to make the gravitational model work. Other mathematical conjectures followed. Assumptions about the redshift of objects in space led to the conclusion that the universe is expanding. Then, other speculations led to the notion that the expansion is accelerating. Faced with an untenable situation, astronomers postulated a completely new kind of matter. An invisible something that repels rather than attracts. Since Einstein equated mass with energy, they show us his famous E equals MC squared formula here, of course. This new kind of matter was interpreted as being a form of mass that acts like pure energy. Regardless of the fact that if the matter has no mass, it can have no energy according to that equation, I guess. Um, energy equals mass. Speed of light squared, right? C is the speed of light mass times the speed of light squared. Um, astronomers called it dark energy, assigning it to an ability, assigning to it an ability to overcome the very gravity on which the entire theoretical edifice rested. Yeah, I mean, I don't tend to like it. I don't think my buddy Mick liked it a long time ago. He's been telling me there was no big bang. And I think these guys tend to come down on that side as well. Let me know if this sounds familiar, Mick. We've talked about some of this, I think. Dark energy is thought to be something like an electrical field, with one difference. 
electrical fields are detectable in two ways. When they accelerate electrons, which emit observable photons as a synchrotron, and Bremsstrahlung radiation, Bremsstrahlung radiation, and by accelerating charged particles as electric currents, which are accompanied by magnetic fields, detected through Faraday rotation of polarized light. Okay, so what did we just read? They're telling us how you can detect electric fields. Photons and synchrotrons. Bremsstrahlung radiation. By accelerating charged particles. All right. You guys have to read it too, because, wow, even reading it out loud was a tongue twister. Might have something to do with the dabs. I don't know for sure. Can't draw. Let's not jump to any crazy conclusions, all right? Let's just keep reading the story. Dark energy seems to emit nothing, and nothing it purportedly does is revealed through a magnetic field. One suggestion is that some property of empty space is responsible. But empty space, by definition, contains no matter and therefore has no energy. The concept of dark energy is philosophically unsound and is a poignant reminder that the gravity-only model never came close to the original expectations for it. Taking the postulated dark matter and dark energy together, something on the order of 24 times as much mass in the form of invisible stuff would have to be added to the visible, detectable mass of the universe. That's to say, in the gravity model, all the stars and all the galaxies and all the matter between the stars that we can detect only amount to a minuscule 4% of the estimated mass. Critics often point out that a theory involving requiring speculative, undetectable stuff on such a scale also stretches credulity to the breaking point. Something very real, perhaps even obvious, is almost certainly missing in the standard gravity model. Is it possible the missing component could be something as familiar to the modern world as electricity? shit right there compared to worrying about obnoxious mass surveillance all right well that's that's done that's the heavy lifting everybody we're gonna take one more dab together because why not we've already taken like 50 dabs fuck it we're just gonna take one more i've been hiding out up here in this hot room all night i'm gonna get downstairs and probably go out and run through the kids sprinkler even though it's almost nine o'clock at night and uh yeah, they had a sprinkler going down there until a little while ago. They're going to think I'm a crazy dad. Um, but yeah, and then we'll get this out to you, you know, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow. 
uh, the Electric Universe is an awesome and fascinating theory. The documentaries are compelling. These these little intros are, you know, barely a primer. They're just they're just for fun. They're just a way for us to talk about it and introduce the concept and bring up something that we could talk about in the comments or on email or on Instagram, um, wherever. Uh, yeah, take a peek and look at the pics that I'll upload to Instagram in the next day or so and with the episode when I publish it uh, of the quartz and you can see what you think of, of that and how it looks um, and you know I'll continue to report back in on how my care and you know stuff of this particular cheapy $15 banger goes and how long it lasts uh, and everything you know how long we're able to make it last and maybe I'll show it again before it's done My torch is back to behaving itself. I don't know what the hell that was earlier. That was really weird. Um, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to... Uh, well, I continue to be excited about my collaborations uh, with everybody behind the scenes uh, at the Damaged Goods Network, and there's a lot of stuff planned, but the, the first of which and the one that I'm looking forward to uh, in the nearest in the future here is uh, getting ready to go and cruise over and visit the girls at uh, Daddy Issues podcast. Shade and Lily Bongwater over there. My girls at Daddy Issues have graciously invited me on to come and hang out. I think we get to chat and and do, do the thing. Uh, but I also think that I'm going to help them out with a strain of the week uh, that week. I think we're recording like early next week. So uh, stoked about that. They said I can pick the strain. Um, so that should be really fun and, uh, I'll probably go back to flower for that one. Um, and, uh, yeah. So looking forward to that girls. Um, if you haven't already checked out daddy issues, um, you can find them at damagedgoodsinc.com, uh, where you can find all the podcasts on the damaged goods network, uh, including our own baked and awake right here. Um, you can find me a bunch of other different ways and places, but you can definitely find me right there on the Damaged Goods family homepage, along with Damaged Goods, the show, beta testing the show, needless to say, and daddy issues. Um, and holy shit, Clay, you're going to punch me in the balls. And Clay time in the basement. And Clay is really funny, too. So, uh, yeah, last but not least, my boy Clay. Um, looking forward to that. That is quartz is cooling down. We're going to take this dab. Let's take this dab. bad another nice low temper and so you'll see if you did that right you know again don't chase that reclaim right don't worry about that chasing that last little ring around the bottom that'll be light in color it might even be lightly bubbling as you're finishing up but you can see i didn't strain i'm not coughing 
It tasted great. You already know I'm stoned out of my mind because I've been fucking up half this podcast, right? You've been listening to it, so you know it's working. It's not like you're not getting your dab. Um, right? So, um, and you don't have that much to chase and clean out. Let's grab a swab, clean it out. Um, so I'm going to let you go here. Um, I'm going to tell you I'm looking forward to a couple of upcoming events. Uh, let's see. I think the first of which is, yeah, Hempfest uh, coming up next month in mid-August. All right. And uh, I heard Goldilocks from SeshCast, my good buddy from the Podcast Builders League uh, from back east, uh, is going to be in town uh, for Hempfest out here in Seattle. And so we're going to plan to get safe together at the fest, I hope. And hopefully I'll even get to hang out with him outside of that. Uh, we'll see what we can do while he's in town visiting beautiful Seattle. Uh, and then in September, mid-September, uh, I'm, I'm just found out about this like yesterday, today. So I'm looking forward to it. But I heard of uh, Renton City Comic Con. Uh, so it's a comic book convention. I think they've been um, involving podcasters for a couple of years already. This is like their third year of this event. Um, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, uh, gaming and comic and, uh, movie and, you know, all the different sort of geekdom, uh, realms, uh, converging on the Renton City Comic Con, including podcast fans and podcast friends. Uh, and so I think there might even be some live podcasting opportunities and depending on, you know, how open to it they are, um... And, you know, I don't know how I'm not going to, like, you know, try to do dabs down at a live podcasting event in, in Renton, you know, where there's probably families and stuff like that. Um, it would be interesting to see. Who knows? Maybe we can participate in some way, either on one of the panels or do some uh, podcasting from the location. Uh, I may very well simply do my own live stream and create some content uh, while down there as an attendee, if nothing else. Uh, so that's mid-September, the 15th and 16th. I've got links for Hempfest there for you. <clears throat> I've got links for the Renton City Comic Con for you. In the show notes. Uh... You guys heard a couple of promos, one from Owl Street Garage Podcast and one from Single Simulcast uh, during today's show. Uh, great shows both. Really hope you check them out sometime. Hey everybody. I've had a great time sitting down and yapping at you once again. I'm getting way too dabinated. I think I held it together pretty okay, though, all things considered. Having way too much fun with that new dab rig, that's for sure. I'm going to have to settle down now. Uh, you don't have to settle down, though. You just stay fired up. You do whatever you want, all right? You go nuts. But while you're doing it, make sure you smoke some indica. And do that shit anyway.
Here at Single Simulcast, we often think about our listeners, what you're feeling, what your emotions are. How much there is a show that I could depend on? Every Wednesday, Single Simulcast will bring you some of the liveliest, funniest podcasts that you've ever heard, with such things as skits, musical interludes, and parody songs. I wish there was a show that I could laugh at. We here at Single Simulcast fully support you and your visions and dreams. So we will never do anything but bring you the most hilarious storylines in the game today. I wish I could fly. Single Simulcast loves you. We want you to know that we will always be funny, except for now. Because we're being serious. Serious about being funny. I wish I had a wish star like Macaulay Culkin. That's single simulcast. On iTunes, Stitcher, Zoom, and at www.singlesimulcast.com. Single simulcast. If you don't know by now, then you're probably slipping. Single simulcast. Don't know my name, and you slipped.